We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We hope that and trust that you brought your Bible with you. And if you have a Bible, then turn to Genesis chapter 2 with us. If you didn't bring a Bible, perhaps there's one in the pew close by. We're going to be spending some time in Genesis chapter 2 focusing on marriage. Later this week, I am to speak at a church where they are studying through the book of Genesis, and they've assigned to me Genesis chapter 2 with the focus on the teaching on marriage from Genesis 2, and thus the lesson this morning on Genesis chapter 2. Let's begin by looking at an overview of the chapter, get a bird's eye view of what chapter 2 is about, and then we're going to zero in on a section beginning at verse 18. I call simply, chapter 2, simply a matter of man in the garden. Man was created, that is, Adam was created in chapter 1. And we have now in chapter 2, the creation of, uh, the creation is finished and God resting on the seventh day, verses 1 through 7. Beginning at verse 8, we have man in the garden. We have a description of the garden being verses 8 to 14. If you scan over that, we're not going to take the time to read that. What it was like at verse 15, we see man's work in the garden. That the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Beginning at verse 16, we see a law that of what he could and he could not eat. There was a particular tree that he was not to eat of, and the day that he would eat of it, he would surely die. Now our focal point is verses 18 to 25, and that's the creation of a woman. And we're going to focus on 18 to 25 where God saw that it was not good that man should be alone and so he made him a woman to be a helper suited for his needs. So what we have here in Genesis chapter 2 is the beginning of marriage, the beginning of the home, and the beginning of the family relationship. Prior to this, we haven't seen that. But we see it here starting in chapter 2. From chapter 2 of Genesis on through the rest of the Bible and on through the history of mankind, we have home and we have marriage and we have family. What I want us to see in chapter 2 are some principles that we learn from Genesis 2 about marriage. Several principles we're going to learn about marriage from Genesis chapter 2. So let's begin by reading verses 18 to 25 and getting familiar with a text that we already should be familiar with. And that is the creation of marriage and creation of woman because man has already been created. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
Now let's focus on the lessons and the principles we learn about marriage from Genesis chapter 2. Here's the first that we're going to learn from this context. I want us to see first of all that marriage is of, marriage is divine in its origin. Marriage is divine in its origin. Marriage is either divine in origin or it is not divine in origin when we look at the law of excluded middle. That is, it's either this or it's that, and there is no other choice. It's either divine in origin or it's not divine in origin. If it is of human origin, that is, marriage is of human origin, and many argue that, that would mean there are no rules to be bound, and then the man and the woman or whoever else may be in that marriage relationship can do as they please because marriage is of human origin. Man devised it, it is of his thinking, it is for his pleasure, and consequently man can make the rules that bind the marriage relationship. But if marriage is divine in origin, that means God has the absolute right to set the guidelines. The evolutionist and the humanist argue that marriage is the result of a long line of an evolutionary development of biological creatures forming pairing relationships. And the idea of marriage is that long before man was ever de developed or man evolved, that there were these creatures, there were these animals that began, began to notice, you know what, there is some, there, there's one that's developed that's a little different from me, and they start pairing with each other. And so the same thing happened eventually with mankind as they evolved. I simply suggest on the screen before you, there is no evidence of that at all. So their idea is that it is of human origin because as man evolves and develops, he begins to realize, you know what, maybe we could just get married somehow because now we have evolved into the status that we are in. Furthermore, let's look at evidence that marriage is divine in its origin. The Genesis record that we're reading in Genesis chapter 2 shows that God instituted marriage. So let's go back to our text at verse 18. It was God's idea, take note of this fact, that it was God's idea to make a helper comparable to Adam. We'll make this point again a little bit later. It was not Adam making an appeal to God, I wished you would make me a helper comparable to me. I wished you would make me a mate like all the animals have mates. But this was God's idea. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so what I'm learning from that is it was God's idea to make a helper comparable to Adam. So now verse 21 says that God made woman. That the Lord caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he took his rib and closed up the flesh in its place. Now verse 22, and then the rib which he had taken from he made into a woman. Now notice verse 22, he brought the woman and presented the woman to man. Then the rib which the Lord had taken, he made into woman and he brought her to the man. So it was God's idea, I'll make you a helper comparable to you. He took a rib and he made a helper <coughs> comparable, he made a woman. And then he brought the woman and presented the woman to the man. What I'm learning from that is that it's divine in origin. Now notice Moses' comments. <coughs> Commentators vary at verse 24. Is this a quotation from Adam? Verse 23 is, but I'm convinced that verse 24 is the commentary given by Moses. And why do you say that? 
because Adam does not have a father and mother to leave, <clears throat> but this is the comment, the divine comment given by Moses <clears throat> in verse 24, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Moses, by inspiration, comments about marriage. What I'm learning is this principle that the record shows that God instituted marriage. Now let's go over to the book of Matthew, if you will, chapter 19. Mark's account says much the same. We'll only look at Matthew's account. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus <clears throat> quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and endorses this, this divine record in Genesis chapter 2 and gives his stamp of approval to that. So if Jesus was raised from the dead or proved to be the Son of God by the miracles, that proves then the Genesis account must be true because Jesus gave his endorsement to that. So notice at verse 4, he answered and said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus gave his endorsement. Now we'll come back to that record in Matthew chapter 19 in just a moment. But let's go further. We're still arguing for the fact the evidence is that it's divine in origin. Secondly, may I suggest to you that marriage is universally practiced. Marriage is universally practiced. One anthropologist said that there are no societies in which marriage does not exist. And I would challenge someone to, to give evidence that that is not true. Now, if marriage is developed in random, haphazard, evolutionary fashion, like the evolutionist and the atheist would suggest, that would be, we would expect that marriage would be found in one culture, not developed in another. And if you missed that point, let me go over that again. If evolution be true and man gradually developed into marriage and pairing relationships, you would expect to find in one society or in one group of people, they've developed into marriage and over here they haven't yet developed into marriage yet. But that's not the case. Evidence shows that indeed marriage, there is no society in which marriage does not exist. That would suggest the record is true in Genesis chapter 2. Furthermore, the historical record. Marriage has been a part of the history of mankind since the beginning. And I cite Genesis 2 as evidence of that. Even if one would not accept Genesis 2 as inspired, they will accept the fact this is a historical record. They may think it's a perverted record, but it is a historical record. Endorsed by Jesus, I might add, in Matthew chapter 19, and it shows that marriage was there in the beginning. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And so marriage has been in the history of man since the beginning. The Code of Hammurabi that dates back to 2100 B.C. contains 282 laws. 34 of those 282 deal with marriage showing that even before the time of Christ, 2,000 years before Christ, we have laws concerning marriage. So what am I learning so far from Genesis chapter 2? If I quit at this point, I've walked away and I've learned from Genesis 2 that marriage is divine in its origin. Now before we go to the next point, let's make an application of that. Make a fundamental practical lesson. And that is any kind of argumentation against marriage, any degrading of marriage, any putting down of marriage is degrading a divine institution. And it is kicking against God. And what we mean by that, it may be that someone's individual marriage may not be as it should be, but that doesn't mean marriage is not as it should be. When we say marriage is not great, 
When we say marriage is not good, you're better off not to be married than you are to be married. It's better off to not even get married because it's so bad to be married then we are degrading the very institution that God has created. Marriage is divine in its origin. But secondly, I learned from this same context that marriage is good for mankind. There are those who think that marriage is not good for some. That is, it's not good for women. The feminists argue that marriage is good for man, but it's not good for the woman. It's not good, so they want to abolish marriage if they can. And there is this, this, this thrust to somehow abolish marriage because marriage is not good for women. It is good for men, but it is not good for women at all. But I want to suggest to you that it is good for mankind. And I learned that from the Genesis record. Let's go back to our text in Genesis chapter 2. Perhaps you've left there to go to the book of Matthew. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 18. We read that God said it is not good that man should be alone. I want you to notice with me in Genesis, let's back up to chapter 1, if you will, that this statement is in the context of God repeatedly acknowledging and saying that things were good. Notice in Genesis 1 and in verse 4, we notice that God created the, the, the heavens and the earth, and God saw that indeed it was good. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he made the, the earth and the dry land and gathered all the waters together and he called the seas and God saw that it was good. And I'll read every one of these references, but drop down to verse 12. Again, saw, God saw in his creation that it was good. Look at verse 18, God saw that it was good. Drop down to verse 25, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw that it was good. And in the context of God repeatedly seeing everything he created, said it's good, it's good. This is good and that's good. He saw a circumstance at verse 18. It is not good, he said. First time he said that. And what's not good is that man should be alone. I want you to again notice, as we mentioned earlier, this was God's assessment. And this was God's judgment and not man's plea. It's interesting that Adam did not come to God and plead and say, God, I've noticed there is not a companion for me. Would you make me a companion? But this was God's assessment and this was God's judgment that it is not good that man should be alone. It is not saying that it's wrong to be single. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and in verse 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is saying in 7 and in verse 1, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's talking about the intimate relationship. In other words, it's better not to be married. What's he talking about? Under the present circumstance, the present distress of verse 26. But notice in verses 7 and 8, he was saying it would be better for them to remain even as I. Look at verse 8, it is good for them to remain even as I. That is, he was living single, he was not married. So he's not saying in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone, that it's wrong to live a single life as the apostle Paul so chose. But I am learning also that marriage is the answer to some problems. In 1 Corinthians 7 and in verse 2, it's an answer to the problem of lust because verse 7 says, verse 2 says, because of sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife and every wife have her own husband. It was an answer to idleness in 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 13. But I'm learning from this, it's not good that man should be alone. Now let's go back to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. 
And notice in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 18, God said, I will make him a helper comparable to him. I'm reading from the New King James translation. I will make him a helper comparable to him. The King James says a help meet for him. Those two words, not help meet, but help that is meet are comparable, are suitable for him. The English standard renders that a helper fit for him. The footnote says corresponding to him. I'm going to create him a helper that corresponds to him. The New Century translation says a helper who is right for him. The New American Standard 95 says a helper suitable for him. The NET footnote says an indispensable companion. I'm going to make him a helper that is suited for him, that is comparable to him, that is fitted for him, an indispensable companion. Now I want you to notice verses 19 and 20. Notice the flow of the content. A cursory reading of Genesis 2 may seem a little strange. And by that I simply mean that if you're not familiar with the flow of the text and you're reading Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God said, I'll make him a helper for him. You would expect the very next phrase is, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and made him a, made he, uh, took his rib and made it into a woman. That's not what it says. It talks about God creating animals. It's the very next statement. So let's get that verse 19. Get verse 19. For out of the ground, after God said, I'll make him a helper comparable to him, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called the living creature, that was his name. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Once you get the point. As Adam named them, he had to notice, he had to notice there is a male and a female of every animal. But there's nothing that's my counterpart. God's doing something here for Adam. He's bringing all the animals before him. Adam, you called and named the animals. And whatever you name them, that's what we'll call them. And so he begins to name this animal. And he notices, he has to notice that this animal has a male and a female. And this animal also has a male and a female. And this one over here has a male and a female. And that one has a male and a female. I notice that. But there's not a companion for me. There's not my counterpart anywhere. So what God is demonstrating is God paired the animals before Adam so he could fully understand the need for a companion and that he was all alone. Here's what I learned from that. Man better appreciates marriage when he understands the loneliness of not having a mate. And Adam saw that. He saw, I don't have what these animals have. I don't have a companion. I don't have a counterpart. God did that to show Adam the loneliness. You don't have anything like that. And so what did God do? God made a woman from Adam's rib. Look at verse 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman, the text says. She was created for man. Look at that in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 9. For nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. That's talking about in the day of creation, back in Genesis 1 and 2. He was not created for her, she was created for him. That is, she was the helper suited or comparable or the companion to him. 
It shows that she is part of him. That is, he was, she was taken from his rib. He views her as his own flesh. Notice when the man in Ephesians chapter 5 is to love his wife even as his own flesh. He views her as his own flesh. She came from his flesh. She is equal to him. Corresponding or suitable to him. She is the missing part. That Adam began to look around and see I'm missing something here. All the other animals, all the animals have companions. I don't have a companion. There's something missing in my life. His reaction is going to tell us that. Look at verse 23. Adam's reaction to this shows that marriage is good. Now get the picture. God's the one who said, this is not good that you're all alone. So he made a, com a companion helper uh, suitable to him. And Adam's reaction shows that it's good. Notice what he says at verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. It's interesting, these are the first recorded words of man. These are not the first words, but the first recorded words. You say, what were the first words? I don't know. But verses 19 and 20 says he's naming the animals. Those must have been his first words, at least that we know of. I don't know of anything else he said prior to that. But the first recorded message of man, this is interesting, was a statement of the value of his wife. Isn't that interesting? The first recorded words of man. This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is saying she is part of me. We're made of the same stuff. She's made from my bones and from my flesh. And notice he said this is now bone of my bones. I like the, the English standard reading. This at last. This at last. Is bone of my bones. As Adam looks around at creation. He sees all kinds of animals. And he sees companions. These are companions. And these are companions. Those are, but he doesn't see a companion for himself. Perhaps he was looking for a companion. Is there anywhere a companion for me? Hasn't seen one. God comes bringing the woman and says, this is what I made out of your rib. And Adam declares, this at last is what I've been looking for. This one and no other is bone of my bones, he says. Adam's reaction shows that marriage is good. So I'm learning from this that marriage is divine in its origin. Marriage is good for mankind. But I learn also from this context that marriage is heterosexual. I'm learning from this context that marriage is heterosexual. In the Genesis account, God made male and female. So let's go back to the record in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. And I've emphasized on the screen before you the words of man or woman and male and female. I don't read every word, but notice the words emphasize. The Lord God said at verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. Talking about man, man male. And so he said, I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Now dropping down to verse 22, he took his rib and he made into a woman. Now we have a man and a woman. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And notice verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife. 
God created a man, God created a woman, God created man, God created wife, and he created marriage. Now when Jesus commented upon this, he said he that made them at the beginning made them male and female. There was no other gender that he made. God made them male and female. We need to understand that the mate that God chose for Adam, a male, was Eve, a female. Other relationships were forbidden. Now let's go in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This is New Testament record. Leviticus 19 would argue the same thing. Genesis 2 would argue the same thing. And we'll come back to Genesis 2. But I want us to go to Romans chapter 1 and see that God's principles concerning same-sex relationships, that is, God made male and female, man and woman, and joined them together in marriage. Other relationships were forbidden. Same-sex relationships, which are esteemed in our day and time, not only held in high honor in our day and time, but even shoved in our face that we're to accept that, Something that was contrary to the will of God. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, speaking of the Gentile world, God gave them up to vile passions. Vile passions, notice. For even their women exchanged the natural use which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men committing that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. God's idea was that when men are with men and women are with women in a sexual sense, having that kind of relationship, it is contrary to the will of God and their judgment is due. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, some of the Corinthians had come out of that kind of lifestyle. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's the kind of people that don't go to heaven. Neither fornicators, you say, I got that, adulterers, idolaters, nor homosexuals, or sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he said. Some of you were that way. But you were washed and sanctified. You changed. Other relationships were forbidden. But let's go a step further. Sexual relationships with animals was forbidden. I won't take the time to read the ones in Leviticus, but bestiality was condemned in Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 20 and verse 15, Deuteronomy and verse 20, chapter 27, verse 21, that man should not lie with beast as he would lie with a woman. Bestiality was forbidden. But I want to go back to Genesis 2 because that's our text for study this morning. And I want you to notice with me at verse 20. Genesis 2 and verse 20 implies that bestiality is not in harmony with God's plan. How so? God creates man and then he shows him all the animals. And with all of those animals, look at verse 20 with me, if you will. There was not found a helper comparable to him. There wasn't a mate found there among all the animals for Adam. So God said, I'll make you one. And he makes a woman. Not to use the beast. That was contrary and foreign to the will of God. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 now. To show you that marriage is a heter- should be a heterose- uh, is a heterosexual relationship, back in Genesis chapter 1, God, when he created man, told him to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. 
The inability to reproduce from the same-sex relationship shows that that relationship is contrary to God's plan. So what am I learning from Genesis chapter 2? I'm learning a great deal about marriage. It's divine in its origin. It's good for mankind. It's heterosexual. And it is monogamous. Are you beginning to see why Genesis chapter 1 and 2, one of the reasons why Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not appreciated by the left of our society? Because this goes contrary to what the left is saying. The religious and political left are saying about marriage and the home and creation. This goes contrary to them. They don't appreciate Genesis 1 and 2. But furthermore, let's notice that it is monogamous. Marriage is monogamous. God made one man for one woman, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. So let's go back to that text in Genesis chapter 2 and notice in verse 24. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God did not make marriage for man and his wives. God did did not make marriage for woman and her husbands, plural. Jesus endorsed this monogamous relationship. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. We've turned there several times already. But Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 5. Jesus said, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus endorsed that. And thus polygamy is wrong. But that ought to be obvious. But I want to tell you there are some who argue that there is not any prohibition against polygamy. I've heard some brethren even say, and have been reported that some brethren have argued, where is the prohibition against polygamy? Some who have been pushed in the corner, and what I mean by being pushed in the corner when we've argued over divorce and remarriage, that if you can keep the mate you're with while you, when you obey the gospel, no matter how unscriptural it is, could you keep it if you're married to seven women? Like in the polygamous relationships? To be consistent, they have to say yes, and some have gone that direction, I'm being told. And have raised the question, where is the prohibition against polygamy? Well, here it is, Genesis chapter 2. That if, if marriage is monogamous, one man for one woman for life, polygamy is wrong. Now, I want you to notice that in this same context of Genesis, that polygamy is pictured as rebellion. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. We're just a chapter over from where we've been. So let's go to Genesis chapter 4. You remember in chapter 4, you have the story of Cain and of Abel. Cain slew Abel, the text says. And I want you to notice about Cain's rebellion. Look at verse 16. Concerning Cain's rebellion, he went out from the presence of the Lord. He went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, beginning at verse 16 and the verses following, what we see is his descendants followed that kind of rebellion. Here's a man who rebels against the Lord, and his descendants rebel as well. Now notice verse 19, Lamech, verse 19, notice what the text says, Genesis 4 and verse 19, took for himself two wives, took for himself two wives, isn't it interesting? To my knowledge, the first reference to polygamy was in the context of a man rebelling and his descendants rebelling with him, and one of those took two wives. Polygamy is a part of the rebellion against God. I like what H.C. Leupold said. He said, up to this age, talking about Genesis 4, 19, 
Up to this age, the original purpose of God in creating one man and one wife and uniting them in marriage had apparently been understood as sanctioning only monogamous marriage. In the seventh generation from Adam comes a man in the line of the Canaanites who dare fly in the face of the divine institution. How bold he must have been. I want to suggest to you that I'm learning from this same context if marriage is monogamous, then marriage is the exclusive outlet for sexual fulfillment. It's become quite common in our own day and time for people to have relationships outside the realm of marriage. And no questions are asked, no embarrassment is there because that's just accepted and that's the norm of the day. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 again. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 24. That a man should leave his father and mother and be clinging to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Well, that passage argues that marriage is the exclusive outlet for sexual fulfillment. Go to Hebrews 13 and in verse 4. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. That is, the marriage bed, the sexual relationship is honorable within the marriage relationship, but the adulterer outside of marriage and the fornicator before marriage, God will judge. If it's before or outside the realm of marriage, God will condemn, but it's honorable within marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 and in verse 2. In order to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every wife have her own husband. What am I learning from Genesis chapter 2? I'm learning, number 5, that marriage is permanent. I'm learning that marriage is a permanent relationship. Jesus used Genesis chapter 2 to emphasize that marriage is permanent. So let's go to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked a question. They came testing him and the question was, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any, just any reason? And when Jesus answered, he pointed back to Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 24. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, this is a quotation from God, as Moses recorded, quotes Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 24. Jesus then gives in verses 4 to 6 four reasons for his answer. Can a man divorce just for any reason? And here's what Jesus said. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, not males and female, or male and females, but he made them male and female. One man for one woman for a life. So what's your answer to the question? The answer is no, you can't get a divorce just for any cause. Secondly, notice what Jesus said. Quotes from Genesis 2 that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined, or the King James says, cleave to his wife. Cling to his wife. He cleaves to her. You can't cleave to your wife and divorce her just for any reason. So the answer is no. The third is they are one flesh. One is the only number as far as people are concerned you cannot divide. And then fourthly said God has joined them together and what God has joined together let not man separate. So his answer to the question wasn't just no, 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 no. But instead of giving no, he gave four reasons for that no. It's a resounding no. Can a man divorce just for any reason? No, it's a permanent relationship. Why do you say that? For these four reasons, it's a permanent relationship. Here's something else I'm learning from Genesis chapter 2. I'm learning that marriage involves commitment. I'm learning that marriage involves commitment. 
I'm learning that because verse 24 says a man must leave his father and mother. We've already argued that this must be Moses' comment and not a statement from Adam. And Matthew's account seems to indicate that Jesus is saying that God had said this statement, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife. That doesn't mean they don't have any relationship with them, even a close relationship with father and mother. But they're not the primary relationship. So in what sense does a man leave his father and mother? The father and mother is no longer the primary relationship. She's now first and foremost in his life. The couple are committed to each other, not to their parents. A new family relationship has begun. The headship has now changed. Where the headship for her may have been her parents, the headship for him may have been his parents, but now the new family has been formed and the headship is not the parents, but the new husband in that relationship. They're not to interfere. So here's part of the success of marriage. They're committed to each other because they're leaving father and mother. And then he says they're to be joined. What does that word join mean? Cassinius says it means to cleave, to adhere, especially firmly as with glue, to be glued. That's what the Hebrew word means here. Same meaning of the Greek word that Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 19. But it's the idea of being cemented or glued together. You think of gluing two things together as not something that's done for temporary purposes, but you intend for it to stay. So you're glued to each other. There is a commitment that you have to each other. It describes an inseparable relationship. You see, in marriage, you're making a commitment to each other. This commitment means you're building a relationship with God and upon your relationship with God and your commitment to each other. So what is this commitment we have? We're building this marriage on our relationship with God and the commitment we're making to each other. We're cleaving to each other. We're gluing to each other. The marriage is not built on attractiveness or romance. Because I want to tell you that attractiveness may change over the years. The romance may fade over the years. It's not built around the children. Many marriages have been built on, on raising the children, and when the children are raised and they're grown and they leave, they have nothing in common anymore. There is no bond between them. This is a commitment you make with God and with one another. And then finally, what am I learning from Genesis 2? That marriage demands unity. Marriage demands unity. Let's go back to Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become, notice this phrase, one flesh. What does that mean? Any commentator that you read, and if it were in Bible class, someone would say, that's talking about the intimate sexual relationship, and everyone would agree that involves the intimate sexual relationship. And so, yes, it involves the intimate sexual relationship, but it involves much more. Let me give you evidence of that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 6, he is arguing against immorality, fornication. Apparently some at Corinth were coming from this background where it's very common and trying to justify fornication. Meat for the body, body for the meat. In other words, when the body is hungry, you dissatisfy it with meat. And the body has desires, you dissatisfy it. That's what you do. And he's arguing against that. 
Verse 18 says, flee fornication. But before he says that, notice what he says about being joined to a harlot. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now when a man joins himself to a harlot, there is the intimate sexual relationship. That's true. But his argument here, he's doing more than that. He's doing more than that. It is not just a physical relationship. He said because there is a sense in which a man with a heart becomes one flesh with her. He's not saying he's married to her. Some have argued that. That's not what the text is saying. It involves a uniting of the body and of the mind. There is a spiritual union. It gives the idea of the two becoming one. Blending their minds, not only their bodies, but their minds and, and their, their whole lives together as if they were one. They're one in their goal, they're one in their aim, and they're one in their purpose. There is a bonding with each other. There is unity. Doesn't mean you just get along. But this is the closest relationship you have with another person. Now, what's interesting to me is we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. That when sin entered into this relationship between, with Adam and Eve, that's when they started to pull apart. Where, let's put this back in the context of unity. They become one flesh. There's unity. You're to be one in your aims and your goal and your purpose. We roll over into chapter 3 and we see that Eve was tempted and she partook uh, of the fruit. She gave to her husband and he partook of the fruit. And now sin has entered into this relationship. And it wasn't until sin entered the relationship they began to pull apart and started pointing fingers of blame. It was at that point where Adam says, it's that woman you gave me. You see, they're pulling apart now because sin has entered into their relationship. While we're talking about the unity, let's suggest that the order of creation suggests authority and submission. If there is not some leadership in the marriage, there's chaos. If there's not following and submission to that leadership, there is no unity. And so this has everything to do with unity. Adam was created first, then Eve. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't create that. God created that. Notice in Genesis 2 and verse 18 that God says to Adam, who's already been created, I will make you a helper suitable for you. Now let's go over for one last passage in 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul said, I do not, let's back up to verse 11. Let the women learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, why do you say that, Paul? I, I will accept what you say by inspiration, but, but tell me why you say that, that, that a woman is to be in submission to man. Now, notice verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The order of creation has everything to do with that. He said that order of creation has to do with authority and submission to that authority. What have we learned about marriage from Genesis chapter 2? There's a whole parcel of things to learn about marriage, not well accepted in our society, not even well accepted by some of our own brethren. But I'm learning that marriage is divine in its origin. 
Marriage is good for mankind. Marriage is heterosexual. Marriage is monogamous. It's permanent. It involves commitment, and marriage demands unity. May that help us to be better in our marriages that we recognize we are one flesh. It involves our commitment to each other. This is permanent. This is the only marriage we can have without somebody committing sin. And it's good. And this was designed by God. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?